I'm 30 years older than I am presently at 60, to get the same response, I may need to lift more. Really working to have strong muscles with your older age so that you can lift heavier so that that heavier lift actually provides the benefit for your, for your um, bones is huge. Welcome back to the show. Today, my guest is Jenna Lesser. Jenna is originally from New York, but she's been a Baltimore resident since she began her undergrad at Johns Hopkins in 2011. Jenna earned her bachelor's degree with a major in biology and a minor in bioethics. After working as a laboratory technician in neurogastroenterology for two years, she began graduate school at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Jenny studied the impact of aging on osteocyte biology, mechanisms by which bones respond to mechanical load, and the contribution of a protein called calcium or calmodulin-dependent kinase 2 on the homeostasis of bone mass. Jenna just completed her PhD, and she hopes to take her expertise into a career in science policy. Jenna and I talk about her own athletics and how her fitness has changed over the years, we take a deep dive into the science of aging bones, frailty, and why lifting weights is so good for you. We talk about simple action steps everyone needs to be taking to promote healthy aging bones and so much more. Jenna is full of knowledge and wisdom, and I know you'll be jotting a lot down on a note app or in a notebook during this podcast. This was probably one of the hardest readings for an intro I've ever had to get through because of so many big scientific words. It's been a minute for me. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Real quick before we dive into the episode, you probably heard about this podcast directly from someone else or saw it shared on social media. We can only grow, spread our message further, and keep bringing in awesome and amazing guests with your help. If you could take five seconds and hop on whatever podcast platform you're using and leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. On to the show. Jenna Lesser, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Derek. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so you just finished your PhD. How does it feel to be done? Amazing. It was about five and a half years of long work, <laughs> lots of time in the lab, lots of um, experiments, but also a lot of knowledge about bones, which I'm happy to share with you today. <laughs> yeah. So has it set in yet? Is it real that you finished your dissertation and like this whole thing is done? Yeah, um, so I defended in April, but prior to that, in March, I had completed the written document. So it's kind of been a couple of months of celebrating, and last week was graduation. So I got my hood, cap and gown, all of that good jazz. So um, I'll, I'll really feel it when uh, when I get my next job. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how, how does the stress of trying to seek out uh, the career, right, and the, you know, the employment compare to finishing up your PhD? I'll say I'm fortunate enough where uh, my 
current project is not quite finished, so I can stay on um, at, in a different role um, called a postdoctoral fellow and complete that project. And that's also a nice little bridge because I have a lot of exciting personal things happening in my life right now. Um, we just bought a house. I'm getting married soon. So that kind of gives me a nice little cushion to figure that stuff out um, before I pursue um, different fellowships down the road. Awesome. Well, anytime someone is finishing up or has finished up their PhD, um, you know, I always try to kind of rewind the tape a little bit and have them unpack what it is they went to school for, what your early intentions were, and kind of how, what led you into this career path. For sure. I've always been a really big fan of science, um, even all the way back into middle school. It was probably my favorite subject in school. And I at the time, thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. And so I applied to Johns Hopkins, where I got in and completed my undergrad with a major in bioethics, or major in biology, who had a minor in bioethics. And um, I worked as a lab technician, starting all the way, um, or my first experience as, a, as in the lab was all the way in high school. So continuing to thread that experience at the bench into my entire undergrad career. And fortunately, I was able to stay with a group over at Hopkins um, doing neurogastroenterology research for two years um, while I prepared to take the GRE and apply to graduate school. And ultimately, I decided I was probably a little bit more, um, I would get along with the mice a little bit more than I would with patients. So I decided that I would go the PhD route instead of the, um, instead of the medicine route. However, um, being in orthopedics for me has been really tied closely with um, my my lifestyle as an athlete and being a patient of many orthopods. So it kind of was serendipitous that I ended up in bones for my PhD. That's awesome. Well, you know, I definitely want to dive into your background as an athlete because I think that's going to be really pertinent to this conversation. But before we get there, can we also unpack a little bit about exactly what it is that you were studying as part of your PhD? For sure. My um, dissertation kind of had two major chapters. And the reason this happened was um, science isn't always um, linear and not always at the pace that we need to, particularly when you're trying to complete a program like a PhD. So when I started my interest lied um, mostly with aging and how bones um, kind of become less responsive to the stimuli we give them with age and why does that happen? And that kind of tied really closely in with another collaborator of ours on campus who studied muscle in through the same lens. And so marrying those two together was really cool because I am someone who I, I like multi-systems. We don't work in a silo. Your bones don't work alone. They work together with the rest of your body. So kind of seeing how these two systems played off each other was really interesting for me. Um, that was mostly done um, in a cell type called an osteocyte. And we had done some previous research that sh kind of guided us to um, a protein that we thought would be really important for regulating bone formation um, in the context of, of loading the bones um, with with force. And so we knocked that protein out specifically in the osteocyte. So the remainder of my dissertation focused on characterizing the bones in these mice. And it turns out they have severe bone loss at eight weeks old, which is 
you know, that's teenager for mouse. So they looked like an, you know, an 80 year old person, but as a teenager in terms of their bone profile. So it was a really great project and I'm still finishing that one up, that one up presently. Gotcha. Okay. Now you do have a background as a, as a dancer and as a gymnast and, and you played field hockey as well, correct? Yes. Yeah. Lots so, of so one of the things that, that I think there is a, not a consensus on, but is, I guess, just the general vibe when somebody is the retired athlete is, you know, we think of them as like banged up, right? We think of them as somebody that's played sports has probably succumbed to a few, a few injuries. Um, and in their older age, you know, talks a lot about their success and what it is they were able to accomplish, but also can't, uh, help but mention some of the things, uh, in terms of the ailments that have come along with choosing to be an athlete. But I think one of the points that gets missed a lot is all of the benefits that people receive by playing sports and putting themselves in these positions to uh, where they are experiencing things like mechanical load and resistance mm-hmm. from a young age. Can we? Can you expand a little bit on what is mechanical load and some of the benefits that uh, resistance training and other forms of exercise have on bone longevity? Absolutely. So as we mature at, from infant to toddler, child, teenager, young adult, middle age, and then into your elderly years, um, we accrue bone or build bone um, up until about 30 years old. And that's your peak bone mass. So I I am 30 this year and that breaks my heart because I know this is, this is it. And it doesn't mean the end for me, however. So I want to put that message out there. Um, but it's really important when you're younger to be doing these activities that stress your body in a good way. Your your bones are really uniquely designed to adapt to the forces that are put on them because they want to resist fracture. That's their job. So if I'm, um, let's say, uh, I'm doing long jump and I'm running down and I leap off the end of the board and I land in the sand, but my body's not used to that that impact of landing in the sand, then I might break my legs there. But because of all the things that I've been doing, training, doing box jumps, doing um, other types of impact, my, my bones are going to be more adapted to that. They're going to be stronger. They're going to say, I've felt force or strain here. And so we need to beef this area up because this is something we're experiencing on a regular basis. And so the way in which this happens is we've got a really cool network inside of your bones um, uh, made up of osteocytes. And these cells kind of communicate um, across the surfaces of the bones and within the matrix. And they have a really cool network called the canalicular network where they extend these processes out and, and talk to one another physically. Um, they also send signals out um, to to talk to the rest of the body to say, hey, this is this is what's happening in our environment. What do you need from us as a bone right now? Um, and that system is pressurized. It's filled with fluid because I think the only places in our body where we actually have air is through our airway. So everything else in your body is fluid filled. And so if you can imagine that it's a closed system that's filled with fluid and you jump up and down, that fluid's gonna move back and forth across these cell processes. And that's what's really cool about the osteocytes. They sense that force, they translate it inside the cell and have a number of different biochemical responses that happen from that. 
Would you say that it's similar in the way uh, that you earn or develop muscle through progressive overload? Absolutely. It's exactly the same thing. So let's say um, I'm training for a marathon, which personally not my cup of tea, but let's say I decided to just get up and do it. And one day I decide to run 10 miles without having built up the mileage. I might feel a little bit sore in my feet. Maybe I develop a stress fracture because I went too fast too soon. So the concept of that progressive overloader or building up, ramping up your training to be able to do those things. So doing a couple miles here, adding mileage, adding mileage so that my body has time to adapt is definitely key for both muscle and bone. Now you mentioned that our bones peak at about 30 years old. Is this true for an untrained individual that starts their strength training experience or, or, you know, career for lack of a better term, uh, after 30. So in other words, could somebody that hasn't had any experience with resistance training or impact training change their, the structure the integrity of their bones past 30 if they start to incorporate those things? I think, um, I think you, it's not, um, that you, only lose bone. Um, but the rate at which you lose bone after 30 is greater than the rate at which you build bone. So if we think of this as a slope and you, if you don't want to lose bone, you want that slope to be flat or even increased, right? You want to build. So we can certainly slow down bone loss by doing weight training, lifting heavy, adding these forces to our bones. So I think that that's something someone who's untrained or hasn't, you know, spent their young life doing that, um, can certainly, um, take advantage of, but even anybody who's trained their entire lives, you can certainly keep this process, um, at a, at a minimum, like that bone loss at a minimum for sure. So what you're saying is that our greatest opportunity to basically fly the plane as high as we possibly can is before the age of 30. And we do that, by the way, of impact training, resistance training, and those sort of things. We'll get into nutrition in a minute. Um, But in in regards to just the exercise portion, we, we fly the plane as high as we can before the age of 30. And then everyone starts a decline, but we can prevent or slow the decline based on the continuation of these lifestyle interventions. For sure. And I think what's also really interesting, because I th- we tend to think about osteoporosis as something that afflicts women. Men are eligible to become osteoporotic. The point being that men, if we're going to use this airplane, I like that, by the way, if men's men's airplane is higher than women's baseline. So if we're all losing at the same rate, always, um, women tend to hit the threshold of osteo of an osteoporosis diagnosis before men hit that threshold. Gotcha. So it's just a matter of the plane doesn't ever fly quite as high. Yeah. Or or the plane has a, a lower starting altitude. So in other words, it would yeah. take more effort to have the plane fly higher. I love yeah. how we're just gonna keep going with the plane analogy, it, but it I works. It. Well and I and I think also um women have the added disadvantage of menopause. Estrogen mm. is really important for bone mass. And when you go through menopause and your hormones are changing and you lose a lot of that estrogen, you actually increase the rate at which you lose bone for a, an extended period of time. Now, it does normalize out after me- menopause, but you've just taken a big drop and now you're coasting nice and gently again. So 
um, it's particularly, I think, important for women to um, to weight train because this is that um, that's the type of load that's going to cause your bones to um, to to go into anabolism or to build. Gotcha. Now, you know, obviously, you know, exercise is going to be the number one influencer for the better or for the worse here. Um, what are some other factors that play into bone health? Um, yeah, so so your bones communicate with a number of different organ systems. So um, your your bones communicate with your parathyroid. So if you're um, someone who has hyperparathyroidism or hypoparathyroidism, you may have different bone mass baseline. Diabetes is something where your bone mass can be altered. Um, same with being um, being overweight, that can change your, your baseline bone mass. And weight loss can actually be detrimental because if you think about it, you've just removed a bunch of load from your, from your skeleton. You've just taken that away. So your body at, at a lighter um, load will need to work, will need to overcome that massive loss by, by loading your bones even more. Other things that are um, involved... Um, you could have some sort of genetic variant that predisposes you to osteoporosis. Um, your bones also communicate with your kidneys. So um, people who have um, renal issues, renal failure, that might um, cause you to have a different baseline um, uh, bone mass than, than someone else. Yeah, now this, this might be slightly outside of my area of expertise, and I know my my wife will be listening to this as the, the pharmacist and will have comment. But I, I have heard before that uh, inhalers can be a problem uh, for people in terms of their bone health if they're using them when they're really young, especially if they're using them excessively. Um, do you know anything about that? So there is a relationship between um, steroid use and bone mass. The mechanism behind that, I, I, I have not fully... Um, kind of specialized in, but I, in my understanding, it has to do with stimulating the cells that remodel your bone or chew up your bone, the osteoclasts. So it's usually something that happens with prolonged use and acutely is not generally an issue. So let's say, um, you know, you get a really bad case of poison ivy and your doctor has to put you on steroids for a week that's really not going to have a long lasting impact on your bone. But for someone who for years and years is using an inhaler, that would be something that could potentially lead to it for sure. Gotcha. Now, where does nutrition come into the mix here? So um, your bones have two main components. Um, it's and, and I, I say main components, I guess, material components. So the first part of that is the organic part of your bone, which is the stuff that the osteoblasts, these are the cells that um, lay down matrix that gets mineralized. So that matrix is protein. You need to have protein. <laughs> um, and I sure, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, I think, for folks who listen to your podcast here. But protein is huge. So um, that's, that's first and foremost. Um, the other elements that come into play is the hydroxyapatite crystal, which is that when you think of bone as like a hard kind of like stone-like, cement-like thing, that's actually the hydroxyapatite. That's mainly um, comprised of phosphate and calcium. So just having a balanced diet where you get fresh fruits and vegetables, these things have phosphate and calcium in them. And unless you're in the camp where... Um, 
you know, you've, you've got a, a hormonal reason that your calcium or phosphate in your body is not regulated, most people are, are doing just fine. Although um, kids who have poor diet, you've probably heard of, of rickets. Um, so kids, you know, for the most part, are eating pretty well-rounded. So it's generally not an issue. Something that we figured out, I think, as a, as a field is to, is to just eat really well-rounded with a lot of protein. <laughs> Got it. Now, you know, I, I don't know if y'all know the answer to this, um, but obviously the, the nutrition world is very much dogmatic and you see people kind of falling into different camps. And like one of the approaches that I bring up to a lot of our clients and, and, and also to the people that have come on the podcast is that I try to take a much more open-ended approach to nutrition and focus more on the, the individual needs of the clients. But my, my question is, have you noticed or seen a disparity in bone health based on some of these more grounded kind of camps in nutrition? So in other words, vegan versus vegetarian versus like a carnivore versus a paleo based diet. That's a, that's a great question. So that's not something that I've been exposed to, um, in the, in the literature that I work in. Um, I would suspect that, most individuals are are probably doing just fine. Maybe the the folks who are are vegan or vegetarian may need to up that protein intake. Um, uh, but honestly, I don't. I wouldn't suspect a reason to think that it would greatly impact your bone health. Actually, the only thing that I'm thinking of right now is as you get older, your ability to absorb nutrients goes down. So that's particularly why you need to increase the amount of protein you eat as you get older. Um, but other than that, um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's as uh, scary or nebulous or nefarious maybe as, as one might think it is. Yeah. Now, what are some of the other reasons you mentioned hormones, uh, particularly, um, with, with women in menopause, but what are some of the other reasons that people lose muscle and bone mass as they really, age? That's a great question. Um, so, Inactivity is one. So let's say um, you become bed bound for some reason or other. If you had surgery um, or became ill, um, that's a form of unloading. So you've taken away some load from your body and your body says, oh, well, we're not experiencing this anymore. And it's costly to maintain bone. Bone is a, is a sink in terms of energy. Um, and so, yeah, let's liberate bone because we don't need it right now. This is not something that we need to maintain. This is something also that can be experienced if you are in a cast, um, or need to immobilize a limb for a long period of time. But you also see that happens with muscle, right? The muscle around that cast, that casted limb will tend to atrophy. The bone's atrophying as well. So generally when you come back to training and, and regaining use of that limb, things tend to come back to normal. Um, but it's, it's also a possibility that, you know, um, depending on how old you were when this happened, that you don't go back to your baseline and you're just, you're cruising on that downward slope. Um, I think a really another kind of interesting um, way to think about it is gravity is load. So people who go out in space are in, and are in microgravity, those astronauts come back with less bone mass. So I think it's one of those things like if you, if you don't use it, you'll lose it um, when it comes to bone and muscle health. Yeah. So are you telling me I need to start a gym 
on the uh, International Space Station. Is that what we're saying, Jenna? <laughs> Listen, they they take they study that stuff so seriously. They got they got exercise equipment out there, but it's also something to consider. Um, not all exercise is created equal when it comes to building bone. And what I mean by that is, um, it takes a certain amount of force to. Um, push you out of your comfort zone or like your resting zone. So I, I think of, I think of bones as, um, as a seesaw and you're generally hanging out in the middle of that seesaw, nice and balanced. You're not building, you're not losing, let's say. Um, but in order to push things in favor of building bone, you need to go beyond your resting activities. If my resting activities right now are, are doing yoga, um, I'm probably not doing all that much to build bone in my legs. Maybe when I'm playing around with a handstand, I've put all this extra weight into my wrists. I might be building a little bit of bone in my, in my distal wrist, you know, or a headstand, you know, putting all that weight on the top of my head. Maybe I'm adding a little bit of bone there, but I'm not really, um, doing anything beyond my norm. But let's say I suddenly want to pick up um, uh, Olympic weightlifting, which I think in, in your um, field and at the, at the gym, um, you promote that kind of fitness. Um, it's great for bone health because you are lifting more than your body weight. It is supra it's it's physiological but think of it as like supra physiological like you're going beyond your resting zone and that's huge so anything that gets you out of your comfort zone and 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 is more than what you've been doing and i think again that goes back to that progressive training where progressive overload where you're progressively adding more and more weight and you're not just saying you know what i'm really good at at doing a hundred pounds on the squat rack and that's comfortable for me. So I'm going to do a hundred forever. You need to keep pushing your body to, to add more and more. Now it depends on what your fitness goals are. I think how far you end up actually going, but I think that that's especially with age, a really important concept. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we try to drive home for people is it's less important how much weight you can actually move and more important that you have the capacity to do a lot of different things, right? Yeah. So, because, so just to kind of take us back a little bit, you know, one of the problems that, that I've seen is like, there was this phase in the fitness industry where they basically tried to soften everything up, right? They, they added a ton of cushion to shoes. They started adding these bikes where you were essentially laying back where your legs, you know, went through a, a range of motion, but you we were under, you know, very little resistance, if any at all. Ellipticals, again, trying to take the impact out of emotion, which by the way is incredibly unnatural on an elliptical compared to something like running or, yeah. or, or walking. And we're now finally getting back to a place where everyone, athlete and average individual, is being exposed and learning to fall in love with all types of exercise to where people can be exposed to all forms of strength training, all forms of gymnastics, right? And be able to be a little bit more explorative with their movement rather than reserving those types of movements specifically for people training for sport. Yeah. And I, I think that when you, um, I think about in, in my instance, like as a gymnast, um, I was continually in a high impact scenario and taking impact out of the equation can be, as you said, more gentle. Um, and 
I guess I want to clarify for listeners that when I'm talking about bones, I'm talking about like the actual bone structure. I'm not talking about joints here. So that's a totally different thing where I think low impact is often required for joint safety or stability, or if you've had injury, I've had two knee surgeries. I've definitely had to pull away from some of the things because the meniscus in my knee is telling me we don't like this anymore. And so I think that working on, um, on this, you need to keep those things maybe a little bit more separate. So modifying and changing things for joints is one thing, but also, but doing things to stimulate bone is going to be a totally different subset of things. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Um, because, and, and this is something we talk about quite often is not everyone that comes into my gym needs to be doing Olympic weightlifting at any point in their, in their journey. But what they do need to be doing is we need to find out the unique ways that we can introduce load to their body to where they respond well. And I think this is where we can start to find that sweet spot where, where kind of modification and scaling allows us to meet the individual where they are while also providing them with the mechanical loading necessary to benefit them in this, you know, and in, in this particular case with their bone health. But there's obviously a whole range of other benefits to that as well. You got their connective tissue, muscle growth, hormone development. Like there's a lot going on there. Certainly. And, and, when I said that um, not all exercise was created equal for building bone, all exercise is good. <laughs> Let's just put that out there because you're training your system to be better at buffering reactive oxygen species, which increase with age. You're having healthy or good um, types of inflammation and you're training your body to better handle inflammation, something that also goes up with aging. So creating this environment that is a lot um, more beneficial for your cells to function optimally happens with exercise, any form of exercise. Well, and we talked about progressive overload. And if you have somebody who is, you know, 99% sedentary and rarely moves any further from than from their bedroom to the couch, walking is mechanical load or increased mechanical load for that individual, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we're, we're talking to an audience of mostly people that prioritize exercise, but in the case that there's any listeners that are just kind of getting started in their journey, it's not a matter of trying to go from zero to 60 or zero to 80. Like you can just start by adding little bit by little bit. You don't need to feel the pressure of, you know, trying to do all of this at once. Absolutely. And I think um, particularly if we're talking about um, a, a subset of your audience that's a little bit older, you may have, um, there may be times where you have to draw back because the, you've lost some muscle mass. And it turns out with aging, you lose the function of your muscle a little bit before you lose the mass of your mu muscle. And by function, I'm talking about contraction, speed, and I'm talking power from your muscles contraction. And so that happens prior to like, you think someone who has like a more, like more diameter, a thicker muscle has more power in that muscle, but you could still have that. And there's things happening inside of that muscle that's making it suboptimal. And then you start to degrade that muscle, which is sarcopenia, which is low muscle mass. So these things happen uh, I say these things. So loss of muscle mass and loss of bone mass happen hand in hand. And 
I think uh, I may be jumping ahead here, but I wanted, I wanted to jump right into that cycle of frailty. And essentially, this is a this is a feed forward mechanism, meaning that if there's no intervening of it or attempt to intervene, um, it's going to just worsen. So let's say um, you have had a hip replacement or a knee replacement or had soldier, so, shoulder surgery whew, and, um, and you decide to dial back from your exercise routine. That's fine. You need it to recover. Um, but let's say you just decide not to jump back in, period, or there's reasons, um, maybe things aren't healing quite as well, or you're afraid of not coming back to the level that you left at, which, I mean, we all have egos. I have one too. It hurts sometimes to be like, oh, I'm lifting less than I was before, or I got to take more breaks than I used to. But when you let that win, then you're less active, being less active reduces your muscle mass. When you have less muscle, you're not loading your bones as heavily as well. And essentially you just make the round of that circle again because you're less active because you have less muscle and less bone to be active with. And so just finding a space where you can say, you know what, I really wanna focus on my my balance because for someone who um, thinks about bones and like, low impact fractures as a result of falling with old age. That's a lot of musculature that helps to keep you upright and balanced. And so just focusing on something as, as simple as that, and I say simple, it's actually quite complex. There's so many muscles involved with your hips and with your core to keep you upright at all times. So focusing on that and strengthening those muscles will help you to not fall and if you're not falling, then you're not going to be bed bound from having a surgery, from getting, you know, repairs to, to the broken bone that you've incurred from that fall. So it's a really, um, it's a scary system that we can fall into. But I think most of your listeners, and I would, at least I hope so, are people who are looking to, to fend that off as best they can. Yeah. Now we have, you know, we, we understand, you know, lifespan in terms of this binary of like, dead or alive. And, and then we understand health span is basically the, the ability to live a high quality life, however it is that you define it, as late as humanly possible. Um, and one of the, the things that has become pretty well known, I would say over the last decade or so, is there's been some research done in the preservation of fast twitch muscle fibers. So in, in studying people like 100 meter, 200 meter sprinters, we find that they typically they're, they're, the quality of their life is very high all the way up until the very end, and then they have a fast, sharp decline, and then they pass away. Mm -hmm. Would you say that we, you, you spoke about how there's this marriage between bone and muscle? Is there a correlation between the preservation of these fast twitch muscle fibers as we age and our bone health? Certainly, certainly. Um, so one of the things that happens as we get older is – even if you are loading your bones, let's say with the same 100 pound squat, that's what we're, we're working with here. But I'm 30 years older than I am presently at 60. To get the same response, I may need to lift more because my bones not experiencing the same force or strain that it was at 30. And this is because of intrinsic things that are changing inside the cell. So they're not as good at responding. They don't sense it as well. There's a number of different factors, also including um, 
cellular senescence so a buildup of cells that aren't doing their jobs right and they're sending out all these crazy signals that's like hey i'm not working can we do something about this um there's also depletion of progenitor cells so your osteoblasts the cells that are responsible for building bone they're on-demand cells so they need to be stimulated to differentiate and become osteoblasts well eventually as you get older there's fewer cells to to differentiate and and respond so we so really working to have strong muscles with your older age that you can lift heavier so that that heavier lift actually provides the benefit for your for your um bones is huge in my um I wrote a review article about this and in the article it'd be like asking I wrote it'd be like asking my you know 90 year old grandmother to get up in uh squat 225 or 250 like that's insane it's probably not feasible so i think if you can maintain 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 or or fend off at minimum as long as you can you're really setting yourself up for success yeah and what's interesting here is i I always say to people like there are the anomalies that exist right so you can find the example out there if you're if you're young enough right at this point which to me if you're in your 20s 30s or 40s and even 50s in some cases, like you're still plenty young enough to make some serious drastic changes here. And I always point out, like there are people that, I think we found out there were 87 people above the age of 80 years old that ran the New York Marathon the last time that it went on a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And then there's people that still surf well into their 60s and 70s, right? There are powerlifting meets with people in their 60s and 70s. So these things do exist. It just requires you to put effort in very, very early on. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to like jump scare anybody here, but when you have a low impact, impact fracture, um, let's say you break your hip in your 80s or 90s, one in three individuals do not survive the next 12 months. I've heard that and it's wild. It's staggering. And there's also other things you have to think about. Um, you know, my, my grandmother, she broke her hip, required surgery. And fortunately, she stayed with us for many years after that. But her quality of life declined so steeply. She went from walking herself to dinner to um, needing a walker to going to wheelchair to being helped in and out of her bed and shower and things like this. So you lose your independence with it as well. And there's like a really big financial and and mental toll that comes along with that as well. It's really sad, but it does feel like the beginning to the end whenever somebody that is above the age of about 65 has a big fall. Um, yeah, certainly. It's real. It's, it is. It is. Yeah. And it's, the, you know, we talked about some of those preventative tools, you know, one being the stability um, that oftentimes kind of comes organically, right, or naturally with strength training. Um, not always, you know, in some cases there are going to be things you have to do specifically to work on that. Um, but stability and balance um, and strength and then preservation of fast twitch fibers, you know, go a really long way in, in, in aiding that as you get older. Yeah. And I, I'll also add, um, you know, there's so many things that happen as your body ages, um, including, you know, your inner ear, the, the one of the homes of your balance. 
um, that could also be a, a problem for you. Vertigo happens really frequently as well. So um, there's really cool drills to work your vestibular system um, that helps you to stay upright and kind of know where you are spatially. And um, I would totally encourage you to kind of dive into that corner of the internet. It's cool stuff. Oh, I definitely will. Um, are there any areas of bone health that you find uh, get misrepresented or not talked about enough? Hmm. I think for me, it's it's the misconception that osteoporosis is only for women. Um, so again, men can certainly become osteoporotic. Um, I, I guess I'm always a little bit disappointed when it comes to funding and medical care regarding bones. Everybody has bones. <laughs> Everybody has bones. So um, you know, not everybody will get cancer, not everybody will get heart disease, but everybody loses bone mass. So I guess for me, just making it more aware and accessible to seek the treatments, to seek um, being just monitored, you know, the earlier you intervene, the better you set yourself up for success, because you probably are still um have some of your strength, you still have your balance, um, you still have a, maybe a little bit more proliferative capacity to build osteo, like to stimulate osteoblasts and build bone. So I really, for me, would just love to see um, the the health, health space embrace bones and, and medicine and advocacy embrace bones a little bit more. What are some of the tests uh, that people can can do to in order to monitor their bone health? So there's a thing called DEXA or dual x-ray um, absorptiometry. And there was a show on Netflix. I feel like I'm the only one who saw this, but it's called, um, it was called Bringing Sexy Back. And it was based in Australia and they had a mobile DEXA machine. And essentially it's an x-ray that not only differentiates your bones, but can differentiate your fat tissue and your lean tissue. And this is non-invasive. You don't have to be put under any sort of anesthesia for it. Um, it's a pretty quick scan. And importantly, getting it done once doesn't really tell you anything. It could tell you how you compare to other people. But if we're talking about the rate of bone loss as most important, then you'll probably need to get another scan at a set amount of time later so that you can say, okay, this is the delta. This is the difference from my first scan to my second scan, and I'm losing really quickly, or you know what, I'm, I've maintained, or whatever the case is. So DEXA is really important. And unfortunately, in um, right now, um, we're struggling to get Medicaid, Medicare to, um, to, to reimburse for DEXA scans. And many, um, uh, many people in the elderly population are using this for healthcare. And so we're pretty much preventing them access from this, from this test. And what ends up happening is people don't realize that they have low bone mass until they break their wrist for the first time or they break their hip for the first time. It's that first low impact fracture that tips off the doctors to be like, oh, we didn't know this was happening because your bones aren't visible, right? It's, it's mysterious and happening inside of you. And until something happens, that's when you figure it out. So the DEXA is really important um, diagnostically. Um, and I think first and foremost, it should be really accessible to people, but it's not right now. 
Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it seems as though from everything I've read, the same is true for things like atherosclerosis, right? We, we don't notice uh, the we don't notice until someone has their first event. Like, I think it's something like 50% of people's first event uh, of like noticing atherosclerosis is is a heart attack. And and it, it, right, right. But it's very similar, right? It's it's the screenings aren't in place. Uh, you know, the necessary screenings are not in place or available or accessible to the masses. And sometimes, unfortunately, until it's either too late or until after, you know, the intervention is has come after a major event. Yeah. And it's been um, proven. There's a really cool model that they're doing in Europe called fracture liaison service. And essentially what happens is if somebody has a fracture, oftentimes there's um, there's a surgical inter- intervention. And so it pairs up that surgeon with someone who does bone health. So maybe an endocrinologist, somebody who's gonna look at somebody's bone mass from a hormonal perspective. And it matches them up to hand this patient off. And it's like, okay, you had a low impact fracture. You need continuing care for this as you move forward. And we don't have anything like that in the US right now. Um, We're working to get that. I say we, I'm part of the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research. So we um, are working to to put something like that in, in place because it's so effective to treat in that moment with something to stimulate bone formation or to slow down bone resorption to to set somebody off on a totally different path than if they had gone untreated after that first fracture. Gotcha. Yeah, are we seeing um you know on the, the pharmacological side is there is there anything that has kind of come out that seems promising uh you know for to to for from a preventative sake for bone health? So there's a couple of things um, that are, are on the market and have been for a long time. For example, bisphosphonates, you may be familiar with bisphosphonates. Um, they've been around for a while. Um, I think my grandma was on a number of different ones <laughs> over the years. Um, and those essentially kill the osteoclasts when they chew up bone. Um, so it slows down resorption because it says, uh, 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 no more bone resorption and it kills that cell. Um, there's also um, uh, different antibodies out there. One is to, um, res- to stop a signaling from the osteocyte to the osteoclast. So this is a signal that stimulates osteoclast. So this antibody kind of sponges up that signal so that the osteoclasts don't get activated and they don't resorb bone. Um, Something called um, parathyroid hormone is something that we produce in our bodies naturally, um, but intermittent dosing of this, so like twice a year going in for a shot of this this drug or of this peptide really, um, can stimulate bone formation in a good way. The last one that's most recent on the market is something um, that is an antibody against this protein called sclerostin. And that's most of the work that I've been on is been studying this protein. And this protein tells osteoblasts, no, thank you. <laughs> we don't need bone right now. So if we're going, if we can, t- again, like a sponge, sop up that signal so that osteoblasts have a fighting chance to build bone, it's been really effective. There's been a couple of instances um, uh, that have made it 
in the US only eligible for people who have severe osteoporosis and have exhausted all other means. So I think there's a lot of room to um, maybe test does, does this um, antibody work even better if we stimulate with, with bone, uh, bone formation with exercise, right? The two paired together could be synergistic and that would be really, um, you know, groundbreaking and, and revert, not only slow down, but actually reverse bone loss. That's yeah, that's crazy. Has that been studied uh, at people at varying ages or is it because of the fact that they only really work with people that have extreme examples? Does it tend to fall for older individuals? Um, it tends to fall for older individuals. Um, I am blanking off the top of my head the event that had happened um, that made it because um, the FDA has really, really tight regulation. So it's basically got a black box label. Um, so doctors can prescribe it, but they have to tell you like, these are all the dangerous things that could potentially happen. But there hasn't been enough people on the study to say, okay, this is a one in X chance that this happens to you from the drug, or these things were unrelated. They don't have enough people to, um, who require it to, to fully test that. Got it. Now, after you finish up this project uh, at the university level and you're working towards your career, you've mentioned to me that you want to get into something in science policy. What are you setting out or what are you hoping to accomplish? I'm, I don't, I don't fully know yet, but there are things that I'm interested in. So um, in the science policy realm, people phrase it two different ways. It's science for policy and policy for science. And they're different in that I could theoretically, let's say, take all of this data that we've, we've got about exercise and bone health or that scanning via DEXA prevents secondary fractures down the road. And so that's why we need to fund it. I could take that information and then help use it to inform policy. Um, alternatively, um, academia right now is a little bit of a hot mess in terms of the pipeline from graduate students to postdocs to faculty, because um, industry is really appealing. Industry pays really well. And there's going to eventually be a shortage of people who stay in academia um, because it's just not um, as competitive and it's a little bit saturated in that um, jobs are a little bit harder to come by. People stay in those jobs for longer. Um, so I could theoretically go into policy for science where maybe I'm working on the back end of how the NIH grant funding works. And I could change one or two things that says, okay, it's a little bit easier to pay a postdoc more now or um, you know, the funds for this can be reallocated for your science instead of being on the back end paying for the building that your lab is in or something along those lines. So there's a lot of different ways, but this all stemmed from an interest in our politicians um, get to regulate science, get to regulate medicine, and very few of them have backgrounds in this. So if there was any type of way that I could advise, consult, or contribute to their knowledge um, in these fields, whether that's just translating it or telling them vote yes or no on X, Y, Z, that's really where my, my interests lie. Yeah, I was going to ask you in terms of your own personal passions, and I know you're you're still very young and just getting started with this. But if you had to choose the direction of you know policy for science or science for policy, which direction would you go? 
It's hard to say. I'm part of me is inclined to do the the policy for science so that I can kind of make the the process or the the system a little bit better for the people after me, right? Like leave it better than you left it kind of situation. Um but I'm also I th I think my the original reasons I wanted to get into this was probably the science for policy so that we can synthesize the data that's out there, translate it, make it accessible and usable because oftentimes science is behind paywalls. Um, and I'm sure you've encountered this as you go to research for these um, different podcasts or as you go to research just for your own personal interests. And so taking that science from behind, out from behind that paywall to help actually enact change would be huge for me. What has the evolution of our um, knowledge in bone science been like? So, you know, each, I feel like every science has gone through its period of, of uh, kind of like radical, very rapid, quick evolution. What is kind of a, a general sense on how our uh, knowledge has become expanded in regards to bone health? So... My, my take on this, and again, I've only jumped into bone science as of 2017, and there's definitely papers out about bones from the 1970s, so I'm a little late to the game, but my understanding of it was that people really focused on what is bone made of. They were trying to just establish what it is, um, and I think that aligns with most people's perception of bone is a static thing. And bone is very, very much alive and moving and changing all the time. It is your like repository for calcium and phosphate, two things that are vital for life. That's your energy in form of ATP, that phosphate, and for your neurons to fire, the calcium that goes down the axon to depolarize it and tell the next cell what to do. So that's really tightly regulated. And our, to my knowledge, our bones are the only system in your body where you intentionally build it and you intentionally destroy it all the time. And so it's really fascinating how far that that area of the field has come. And, and I tend to think of bone more from like this mechano perspective where I'm maybe a little bit more closely aligned with exercise and physical therapy and orthopods, whereas there's a whole side of bone as as an endocrine hormone and there's signaling that happens um, and people who focus on that, that spectrum of things. But I think a really interesting area of it is also um, like the fragile bone diseases are really fascinating um, as well because that's a material property change um, in the bone. Um, and I think that we have certainly come to understand bone as a, as an integrator of many different organ systems and you can, yeah, I think that's, if I'm going to wrap it up into one thing, the bone is definitely alive, definitely integrating a number of different systems into one. That was a fascinating overview. <laughs> um, now we've gone over so much here, um, it's in an attempt to kind of, you know, package it all up in some actionable steps for people that are listening and might have 
uh, a diagnosis that they're concerned about or just general concern or uh, even just curiosity as to their the current status of their bone health and then along with that some action items that they could tape, take. Um, you know, let's boil it down for people. What are some, if you had to kind of boil this down into, you know, three to five steps, what would you say people should do uh, to continue to work on their bone health? Um, step one, start moving your body if you're not. If you're already moving your body, step two, lift heavy. <laughs> um, step three, lift heavier than that. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best. Oh, man. Um, I, and, and if you're concerned about a particular um, diagnosis or you had an, a sports injury at some point in your life, um, I, I think that there's a really great um, network of the Internet, of Instagram, whatever your social media of choices, of physical therapists that I've been connected with. Um, I have somehow managed to go this entire podcast without talking about the fact that I teach yoga. Um, so being in that space as well has exposed me to a lot of different trains of thought. Um, and I would even say people in the yoga field now if who are thinking of yoga beyond its um, connections with spirituality and um, and and the mental growth that can happen with that practice, but thinking of it in more of a physical space, um, are instructing their students to also cross train, to weight train in addition to yoga. And I think when that comes down to is your body is going to be better prepared for life if you give it variety. I'm really glad that you said that. I mean, coming from a background where I got into CrossFit just as I was finishing up school. And this is, you know, one of the main attractive components to me was the fact that it exposed all weaknesses and it forced you to be really curious about the functionality of your body and what it could and couldn't do. And then learning how to patch up some of those holes. And I, I love the fact that you mentioned that it's, it's important to have this crossover of like, okay, you love yoga. That can be like your, your mainstay or the, the, your number one priority in terms of your fitness, but it's still important for you to be explorative and go do other things. And the same is true to cross that bridge in the other direction. If you are someone who loves strength training, but you don't optimize for things like mobility, flexibility, and stability, it'll come back to bite you at some point. Absolutely. Absolutely. It will. Cool. Well, Jenna, this was amazing. Now, I know you're not one to, to post a ton of stuff on social media. So why don't you give the listeners, tell them about where they can find more about you, but also tell them where they can find out more if they want to learn about bone health. Um, so my Instagram handle is at J Lesser, J-L-E-S-E-R. It's the Lesser Lesser. Um, and that's really just my personal life, but you can certainly feel free to message me and we can chat bones. Um, but the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research is the premier society in the U.S. Um, that that goes over the vast variety of different um, bone studies and areas that I've, I've talked about here. So they've got a lot of resources on their website as well. Amazing. Well, Jenna, this was incredible incredibly informative for me and the listeners. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thank you so, so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. We'll talk again. Sounds good. 
If you feel like the gym is one big confusing and intimidating playground, a personalized coach from Hardbat Athletics can work with you remotely to help match your goals to an actionable plan. You'll get workout videos and descriptions and have access to coaching calls to make adjustments when you need them. Let us take the guesswork out of your fitness and nutrition. Visit www.hardbatathletics.com to chat with a coach today.